0: So one of the questions that, that we have as we gather as a church, and as we consider, well, what makes what, what makes what we do here healthy, or why does our, our church exist, one of, the, one of the ways that I assess the health of the church is that we uh, always have people leaving. Now, that's true of many churches, but uh, we have people leaving in uh, some really good ways. And so i uh, super encouraged, as I alluded to earlier, uh, that our college students, many of them who have been discipled in the context of the local church, have scattered many of them back to homes to summer mission projects. Um, all around to serve the Lord and to spread the good news of Christ. Last week we were um, able to uh, have Jill and Ollie John with us. They'll be back again uh, for the next couple of weeks as we think about their work. Uh, In a couple of weeks uh, going forward, Hugh and Heath Burns. Many of you may remember Heath and Ashley Burns from our uh, congregation. They're heading to Peru to train a group of pastors uh, there. They're just people leaving for a whole host of really good reasons. And so tonight, an, another thing that we're going to do is spend some time praying for uh, the ongoing work of pastor training in Peru as, uh, as Heath and Hugh uh, head, uh, head there uh, in a couple of weeks, and uh, hope that you will be with us. It's a really special and encouraging time. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, uh, if you would open them to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. The last couple of weeks, um, Trevor and Aaron have introduced us to uh, our boy Gideon, his stories told in Judges 6 and 7, um, and in some ways, these brothers stole my thunder uh, from uh, the text this morning, uh, a bit anticlimactic because you know where this text is heading, but I do think that we have some really helpful ideas to consider this morning, specifically around this question, what is the type of person, or who is, the type of person that God uses. And specifically about that question, I'm wanting to assess what are the characteristics, what are the, the qualities of the man or woman that is used by God to do something significant. Now, when we come into a room like this, there's not much that we all have in common. I mean, some of you, like Andrew, love the tigers. Some of you, not so much, right? Uh, some of you are heading to a vacation at the beach. Others of you, like me, sand, sweat, sunscreen, uh-uh, not my thing, right? We would much prefer the mountains. Some like cats, and some of you wish they were all dead, all right? Um, <laughs> Some, in a very real way, come in this morning with great joy and excitement when we tune our hearts to worship the Lord. For some of you, that's a very intuitive and innate response because this has been a good week. Others of you, not so much. This week has been filled with great sadness. Some of us believe in the hope of the gospel. Some of us doubt. Some of us don't believe at all. But there's one thing, at least one thing, that we all have in common, and that is this. We desire, or at least at one point in our lives desired, to live lives that made a difference. This is true of Christian or non-Christian alike. Now, I say that some past tense desire, because some have given up on that dream. But at least at one point, all of us can recall a time where we said something like, I want my life to matter. I want it to count. Now, Christians among us might articulate this like, I want to be used by God to do something significant. I think this is true, non-Christian and Christian alike, because we are all made in the image of God. We are all fashioned by Him and designed with a certain mission. We have an inborn mission to declare and demonstrate, to show off His glory, to live a life that's bigger than us. And even when we aren't living in that mission, that mission seems to haunt us. There's something about a missionless life that doesn't get you out of bed in the morning. We we intuitively know there's more than just getting another paycheck washing the dishes, putting the kids down. We want to live lives that are bigger than us. And therefore, Gideon's story this morning helps us uh, run at the question, well, what are the kinds of people that God uses to actually fulfill that? If you want to live a life that's bigger than you, a life that God uses, well, what are the, what are the characteristics of a person that actually accomplishes that? Now, to hold up our boy Gideon as the example of that seems to be a weird thing to do because he's not off to a great start. He's a weak, complaining, middle school boy who whines about taking out the trash, right? You just kind of want to punch him. He's certainly not the prototype of the person that we would expect to be used by God in any significant way. And it's interesting, that, I mean, this is true throughout all the figures that we're going to encounter, and in fact, it's true uh, throughout all the Old Testament. You see these characters, and they're held up as significant and big, and you're like, oh, not really. Sarah and I have a radically different aesthetical taste. Um, Sarah's my wife. Um, one of the things that we're both on a kick with right now is some podcasts, all right? So we uh, drove to Florida and back recently, and on the way back from the beach, eight-hour drive with four kids in the car. My wife's like, we got to listen to some podcasts. I want to turn you on to some new stuff that I've been listening to that I love. So she presses play on this podcast, all right? And for the next hour, episode one was horrific. I mean, it's like some meat-borne bacteria that was infesting. It It was horror. It was the biggest waste of 45 minutes I've ever experienced. So I get to the end, and she's like, babe, that was awesome, wasn't it? I'm like, Mm, that was terrible. She's like, wait, wait, that wasn't the best episode. We got to give episode two a chance, right? So then she like turns up, this is going to be awesome, turns up episode two, and it's just as bad, if not worse, all right? Everything, she puts it forward as this is going to be this, the next greatest thing, and I'm like, uh, all right, we, we have this experience all the time with movies in our home, TV shows, music, you name it. Set up to be, something, and I do the same to her, right? the things that I love. This is going to be huge. She's like, oh, not so much, right? This is the experience we have when we read the book of Judges. Great figure. Uh, No, great figure. Uh, Not really. Another one. Nope, not so much. Like they all leave us with this sense of, nope, this really isn't what it's set out to be. And Gideon is certainly the prototype of that. But as we read, as we set up the scene in Judges chapter 7, it seems as if our boy's off to a bit of a better start in our passage. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Then Gideon and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill Morah in the valley. So as we pick up the story, Gideon at least seems to be in a different place. God's told him that he is going to use him to declare victory, to lead the Israelites to victory over the Midianites, over the pagan peoples in this place. And in contrast to our boy, who's kind of fretful and excuse-heavy, he makes some good moves in verse 1. First, he's up early. You don't get up early um, when you're dreading something. You typically get up early, you're ready to go. He's got 32,000 men. These dudes are following him for some reason, right? There's some people around him. And we at least see that he's positioned for success, We see that the Midianites are down in the valley, good military strategy, Gideon's up top looking down at the enemy in the battle. He's positioned with men, with at least a little bit of energy, and with a good plan. But then verse 2, the scene shifts again. The Lord says to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. I mean, this is a strange setup to the story, right? This is like the basketball coach saying, boys, we're way too good. Like, we're going to work these guys, so I need three of you. We're going to play two on five today, all right? Just not going to happen. We're, we're just too good. The, there are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand. Why? And then we're given the reason. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So what's God's motive? God's motive. God's motive is he knows that if there's that many people and they go into battle, the temptation is going to be for them to get to the end and flex their muscles thinking they did it. So he says, we got to do something about this. So, verse 3, "...therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and only 10,000 remained." (laughs) I mean, what good is it if you have 32,000 men following you, if 22,000 of them peace out on the the first test, right? Now, God's continuing to declare victory over the Midianites. As we've seen throughout the Old Testament, the end has already been declared from the beginning. So the question for us isn't, is God going to win? The question is, what kind of people is he going to use to accomplish this victory? Is he going to use Gideon, and what about this ragtag assortment of people that we never know? Well, 22,000 of these people are not used by God because they tap out too early. They sell their apple stock before it peaks, right? Why? Uh, The only motive we're given is they're fearful, and this uh, this is a seemingly pretty good reason to not want to take some guys into battle. Fearful warriors are prone to do all types of silly things. So let's get rid of those who are fearful, leaving 10,000. And then the scene just gets downright strange in verse 4. The Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go with you. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man, to his home. So Gideon's had some tests up to this point, point. and the sense, as we pick up chapter 7, is this should be a ride-off into the sunset scene. The Lord whittles down the army with fearful dissenters, and then we get this strange second refinement of the group. This is so strange that scholars debate what's going on here. In fact, many of them conclude that something's been lost in the translation of Judges 7 because it just doesn't seem to make any sense. Maybe the thought is that these 300 had less fear, or some suggest that they had less aptitude. They just dipped down and drank like a dog most conclude that this is an example of God glorifying himself by using the weak, or more specifically, just because they were the smallest number, right? So we're going to take two groups, and we're going to divide them, and we're going to take whichever the smallest group of those is, because that smallest number is going to be the maximum glory for God. The bottom line of this isn't to try to discern, well, what's the reasoning behind all this? Just to see, this is God's test. He said, this is the way I'm going to divide the people, and he is as able to save with a few as he has with many. So whatever the dividing line here is, he took the small group of 300 and chose them for reasons that we don't know and perhaps even Gideon did not know and said, I'm going to allow you to lead these into battle. And friends, isn't this much like God's work in our own lives? I mean, often, if you're like me, the ways that God refines my faith are often ways that I don't quite seem to get. He is seemingly taking away everything that Gideon might depend on and continually pointing him towards total dependence on God to give the victory. And this is just like God, to remove all the props that we place in life to keep us from depending fully on him. You might think that Gideon at the outset is saying, I I might be able to do this with 32,000. Well, at least I've still got 10,000. 300 water lappers? What am I going to do with this group? And that is exactly the point, that God is for Gideon doing what he does for all of his children, and he is removing the safety nets that prop us up for depending on other things if God doesn't come through. This is a bit like the trapeze artist with nets positioned under him. Well, if all else fails, at least I've got this. God doesn't seem to like those kind of safety nets. God works, in fact, to remove the nets to force us to depend more fully on him, and this seems to be exactly what he is doing in this scene. Yet, the battle between faith and fear is way harder with 300 than it is 32,000, isn't it? And this is the same tension that you and I live with consistently. God's doing good work in us to refine us, to teach us dependence on Him. And yet the tension of living in faith and fear is a very real challenge. So what do we see Gideon do? Verse 8. The people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, to his tent, but he retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down into the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah his servant to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance." And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat." And his comrade answered, There is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Now you can imagine the scene here. The night before a battle, he's staring down into the valley. And notice the, the imagery here is imagery that's used of God's people. Scattered like sand on the seashore in abundance. The enemy are scattered in abundance and they have camels. Right? This is a, this is not a scene that's endearing confidence in our boy Gideon. Now, the last time he was in this place, what did Gideon do? He asked God for a sign. We've got the fleece episode, right? He says, God. I'm scared. If you're actually going to do this, here, come through. Now, notice what happens in this one. This time, he doesn't ask, but God sees what he needs and provides a means of reassuring his confidence. This is great encouragement. We don't have a fleece episode, but it says if God is reading Gideon's mind, he says in verse 10, If you're afraid to go down, go down into the camp and take your servant with you. He knows that Gideon is fearful and alone, and so he does something to reassure Gideon's confidence. This is encouraging for you and I because the challenge of moving from fear to faith isn't a surprise to God. It's not as if God is up in heaven seeing this scene and saying, I can't believe you're so weak and you don't get it. He knows these emotions and as an act of grace provides just what Gideon needs to reassure him in these moments. And friends, if you've walked with God for any length of time, you know that he does the very same thing for you and I. In these moments when we are working through the tension, and it is tension, of do I depend on myself and live in fear, or do I lean into dependence on God and live in faith, God, in his kindness to us, does all sorts of things to reassure our confidence. At times, this reassurance comes in really radical ways. They're extraordinary means of bolstering your faith, but typically, this reassurance comes from ordinary passages of Scripture you read on Monday mornings when you're sitting with the Lord at 6 a.m. with a cup of coffee, or prayers that you pray, or text messages from a friend, or conversations on Sunday mornings. This is why Bible reading, prayer, and other spiritual disciplines are so important— they aren't arbitrary add ons to an otherwise self sufficient life. They are the very means that God uses to time and time and time and time and time and time and time again bolster your faith and remind you, don't cower in fear, but trust in the Lord. They're the dreams that Gideon gets here in the text. God gives to us each Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Tuesday night, all sorts of means that he uses to continually remind us, no trust in the Lord. For example, You're struggling to trust God with the challenge you're facing as a parent, and God uses a conversation with someone in your small group who's been there before to remind you, no, God is faithful. And on the way home, you're talking with your spouse in the car, and you're saying something like, you know, that conversation was exactly what I needed. Why is that? It's just God's grace. God has graciously positioned you in the flow of a conversation to give you just what you need in that moment to reassure your faith. Or you're sitting down with the Lord for your quiet time tomorrow morning, and you just so happen, you remember our book of Ruth, right? As chance chanced. You just so happen to come across that passage that reminds you, Don't trust in your own plans, but in all your ways acknowledge God and He will direct your paths. And it just so happens, chance, chance, that that verse directly speaks to an issue that you're confronting in your life. Why? It's just God's kindness to you. It's just God's kindness to you. So when you neglect Bible reading, you neglect prayer, you neglect going to a small group, you neglect church attendance, you are doing yourself a great disservice. We're not doing those things in some way of earning God's favor, but God in his grace is giving us those things to reassure our faith. This is what God does. And here's, it's almost comical, right? The enemy believes the very thing that God's been trying to reassure Gideon of all along. Some crazy dream, a random, <laughs> like the random snowball that topples into camp and destroys everybody. Their strength is irrelevant. And it's funny, at the, the enemy knows that's Gideon. He's the one that's getting ready to do this. And what's our boy doing? He's kind of eavesdropping outside their conversation. God's given him the very thing that he needs to reassure his faith. And so in verse 15, As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. This is the high water mark of Gideon's life. He worshiped God, and he told the remnant, these 300, don't worry, let's go. God's got this. So, Chapter and a half in, and we finally got our boy in a place of usability, okay? He says, let's go. And so what does he do, verse 16? He divides the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets into their hands, all of them, and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. And when I come to the outskirts of camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all you who are with me, then blow your trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. It's amazing. Our boy Gideon actually starts to act like a leader. He does some really good things. God's faithfulness transforms him. He says, here's the plan. We're way outnumbered, so we're going to sneak up on these boys at dark. We're going to come with some flashing light and some really loud noise, and we're going to scare the bejeebers out of them, right? We're going to shout, and we're going to take this camp. And notice what he says, you watch me, the mark of a good leader. I'm going to lead you into this. Do what I do. Follow my example. Did God know what Gideon could be? Is this perhaps the reason that we first meet, when we first meet this, God calls him a mighty man of valor? And we're all like, not Gideon. But maybe lurking behind the freckle-faced, angsty middle schooler that we read about in chapter 6 is a mighty man of valor when he has learned to depend on God and not before. So Gideon in verse 19, and a hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and they smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew their trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and their right hands the trumpets to blow and they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out, and they fled. And then the story continues, showing how Gideon triumphs over the Midianites. And in the final analysis, it is God who gets the victory. He is the one that gave the Midianites into Gideon's hand. Yet we see this is a sword for the Lord and for Gideon as is God's pattern, he works through a frail human instrument to accomplish the victory that he's already declared would come to pass. And this then is where Judges 7 intersects our lives, because in the final analysis, isn't that what you and I want We believe that God is sovereign and in charge and is orchestrating all things together for his good purposes. But in the final analysis, we want to breathe our last breaths knowing that I was invested in the mission that God was orchestrating. I gave my life for something that mattered. And in a very real way, Gideon is a picture of all of us who will be used in that way. He's a weak man, prone to doubt God's faithfulness, yet he was also a man who was used mightily. If you don't believe me, the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, recounting the hall of fame of faith, the people in God's redemptive story who've been used significantly by God, in verse 32, says this, "'What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell.'" Gideon and Barak and Samson of David and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty men in war, and put foreign armies to flight." When the writer of Hebrews is looking out over the history of God's work with the people, he says, Gideon, that's an example of a boy that God used mightily. Who would have thunk, right? He was made strong, and I love this phrase in Hebrews eleven thirty-four: He was made strong out of weakness. So from a human perspective— What made Gideon strong? What made him useful? The word we would put in that blank is not the word that any of you would draw up. The word the writer of Hebrews says, what made him useful is his weakness. And notice, what the writer is saying there is not, he was made strong, he was useful in spite of his weakness, but he was made useful because of his weakness, or in his weakness. Not that he outgrew the weakness, but he was made strong through it. So, if I were to summarize Gideon's life this way and apply it to mine, I would say this. God uses those who live with childlike dependence— God uses those who live with childlike dependence. Now, this is counterintuitive for every fiber of the world that you and I live in. No one is running into a pre uh, to a job interview saying, "Hey, dude, just act like a kid; you'll crush it!" Right. Do everything you can to be a child, but yet when Jesus holds up his kingdom and says, what does it mean to follow me? He holds up a little kid and says, lest you become like one of these, you can't enter the kingdom. Now, certainly this doesn't mean that we want to be childish. Paul is going to write, we don't want to be children who are tossed to and fro by every deceitfulness and crafty scheme." We want to, in our thinking, be mature, but, and here's where I want to press this this morning, adult thinking, gospel awareness in Christ, should produce childlike actions of dependence. This is the tension. So growing in grace means growing in childlike dependence. Maturity equals humility. This is the economy of God's kingdom. So what does this look like in really practical ways? Let me give you, let me give you four, four practical applications, four ways to be a child. Four ways to be a child from the life of Gideon, quickly. First, that you begin by acknowledging your neediness. Do you begin by acknowledging your neediness? In a very real way, isn't this the first act of salvation? Right? What do you do? You cry out to God. You say, God, save me. I mean, in a very real way, all efforts to live uh, apart from God's grace are efforts to saying, I got this. I'm good. So the first act of faith, the act of repentance, is saying, no, I don't, and crying out to God to say, God, I need you to save me because I can't do it on my own. This is the way that we come to Christ. And this is the challenge that I would have for you this morning. If you are running after life in your own power and you're saying, man, I feel like I sold out on that mission a long time ago. Well, allow the tension, the loss that you feel in your life to bring you to a place of dependence on God. Cry out to him. Say, God save me. But friends, those of you that have done that at some point in the past, this is not something that we grow out of. Neediness is the posture of the disciple of Jesus. We consistently acknowledge our neediness. And this is hard for us to evaluate in other people. If you're like me, I kind of roll my eyes at the basketball player in the post game. Uh, 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 interview who says, I want to give all glory to God, right? It's like, did you really? It's hard to evaluate that in somebody else, but it's really easy to evaluate in your own life, isn't it? You know whether you're living in your own strength or living in dependence on God. I don't know that about you, but this morning sitting there, if you're honest with yourselves, you do. You know whether God is the safety net for you if all other human efforts fail or if you're actually leaning into dependence on him. Secondly, how to be a kid that you would grow from failure. That you would grow from failure. This seems to be emblematic of Gideon's life. He's seen God come through. He's seen God demonstrate himself strong. And he's growing and learning from this. Dependence, neediness, doesn't mean that you're helpless. Gideon made some very real choices in chapter 7 that mattered. We're not saying kids in Christ roll over and play dead. But we are saying that you learn, that you see God's hand at work in your life, and you're working from this, you're growing from this. I have, uh, in my spare time recently, uh, Sarah bought me a, a saw for Christmas, and I've enjoyed uh, doing some uh, let's do quote fingers, woodworking projects, all right? Now, uh, if you know anything about me, I'm not very much of a YouTube tutorial kind of guy. I'm the guy that likes to, dude, I'm just going to cut stuff and see, you know, and we'll throw this thing together, and if it stinks, I'll just create a junk pile and do it better next time, right? Uh, And so in my garage, the girls are making fun of me yesterday, because it's just, it's, I mean, there are pieces of wood all over the place strewn about. Every project, it's like the fourth time I try it, I get it kind of close to right, all right? But there's, there's this junk heap of parts and wood strewn about, and in a very real way, that's, that's the picture for us. That we're growing, we're learning from failure, we're going to make a ton of mistakes. The consistent mark Of people that I've observed that are really useful in God's kingdom, that live lives that matter, are those that have weathered some really hard stuff and come out on the other side having learned a ton. They're those that have resolved to use their pain to make a difference. And unfortunately, there are two very real places that you can stop short of that. You can stop short by saying, I'm going to try to buffer my life from any difficult stuff so that God doesn't have to humble me. Um, Just as an aside, he's got really good ways of getting around your stuff to humble you even if you try to keep him out. Or, and this is probably more common, those that go through really difficult stuff and just tap out. They just give up. Life's hard. It doesn't make sense. God's doing this stuff in my life. Forget me trying to leverage that to be useful in the economy of the kingdom of God. I'm just tired. I give up. Sure, they keep showing up in church every week, and they keep going to small group, but they've tapped out on God's mission a long time ago. But really useful people, they're those that serve with a limp. They're those that talk with tears in their eyes. They're those that go to bed at night thinking about times that they've really blown it. But in the final analysis, those are the kind of people that God seems to use significantly. Thirdly, they're people who cry out in the right direction. They're people who cry out in the right direction. Much like a child, your neediness is going to prompt you to run to various sources of help. Like a scared kid in a department store, we're going to seek out a source of security because we know that we are dependent and needy. But those who live with childlike dependence know, as the psalmist says, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And lastly, and probably most difficult, people who live with childlike dependence learn to love help. They learn to love help. This point's been made uh, over and over again that children depend in a very real way on help from others. Uh, I told you guys that I have a two-year-old and my two-year-old loves. I do it. I do it, right? Daddy's trying to get some the top off a drink for. Her. No, I do it, right? trying to open the door that she can't even touch the doorknob to yet. I do it, right? Everything is, I do it. And in a very real way, that is the posture of far too many of us and myself. Adults don't like help very much. I do it is the prize of Americanism. We're self-made individuals. But Gideon's not a self-made man, and anybody that reads these two chapters knows it. He can do anything. Think of how much God had to do to reassure him and give him help. So, you can either learn to love that when God comes through and gives you help, when he opens the door for you because you can't do it yourself, or you can kick against that. And be the fledgling two-year-old that just can't quite reach the doorknob and is turning around saying, God, why are you holding out on me? Why don't you just come through? And all the while, God's saying, because you're doing all this your own self. All you're wanting is the result. You're not depending on me for the process at all. And so those that are really useful in the kingdom of God learn to love that. They learn to love God opening the door for them and looking at the same things. Think of the ordinary means we have of doing this every single day, every single week, the ordinary means of humbling, the ordinary means of getting help. Think about what we're doing right now. When else in your life do you listen to a 38-year-old stand in front of you for 45 minutes and teach you about something? Pretty humbling for those of you in the room that have lived twice as long as I have, that have read the Bible for longer than I've been alive. This is an act of humbling, isn't it? It's an act of saying, I I want to hear from God and respond. Think about what prayer is. Isn't prayer, by its very essence, an act of childhood dependence, childlike dependence? It is saying, God, I can't do this. Please act. Come through. So then, conversely, prayerlessness is an act of selfishness. It's an act of saying, I do it reading the Bible. What an act of humbling. I mean, think, if an 80-year-old saint who's read the same Bible for 50 years, read the same passage time and time again, what's he doing every time he opens his Bible? He's saying, God, I humble myself under your word. Or this morning, think of the act of humbling it is to come to the Lord's table, to come and have servers distribute bread and juice. That are a picture of the self giving act of God. This very table represents for us the fact that you can't do it, and neither can I. And so, what did God do? He did the very thing that He does for getting. He saw that need and He met that need by sending Christ to be the wrath bearing substitute for your sins for his body to be broken, his blood to be poured out. And as you take these elements this morning, you are reminding yourself in a very real way that you're a kid. You're wholly and completely dependent on God for your salvation. So if that is true, why in the world would we live lives that are not wholly and completely dependent on God in every other way? So that's our reflection this morning as our servers come to distribute the elements for the Lord's table. I want to invite you just in quiet um, space where you are this morning to reflect on your posture of dependence. And as you do, I want you to reflect not in light of what you wish it was, but what this last week says it has been. Allow the Lord by his Spirit to humble you this morning, to remind you of your neediness and dependence, and use this space to cry out to the Lord. As the elements are distributed, I encourage you to pray with a spouse or a friend or children sitting around you, college roommates, friends, and entrust yourselves to the Lord's care. Remind yourself of your utter dependence. And once the elements are distributed and we've had a couple of minutes of silent reflection, we'll receive the elements together as a church family.